You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And today I'm delighted to be joined by a special guest. Uh, joining me from California today is Grace Liu, a research associate at the Center for Nonproliferation Studies in Monterey, who focuses on geospatial analysis of North Korea and China. Grace is an absolute geospatial ninja. She's incredible at looking at North Korea. So, Grace, I'm really glad to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks, Ankit. It's great to be here. Absolutely. And uh, I think our listeners know what we're going to be talking about, because I hinted at it at the last on the last episode, or two episodes ago, that we'd be talking about this. But then we had a major nuclear crisis in South Asia, so we didn't actually get there. But this is finally the episode about the long-anticipated Trump-Kim encounter in Hanoi, Vietnam, which unfortunately turned out to be a little bit of a bust. Uh, the two leaders went home without really anything in hand, um, although... The United States has now unilaterally called off the springtime joint military exercises. Um, but anyways, let's take a step back. Uh, so, Grace, I think what we can do here is break down really what went wrong in Hanoi and if there was going to be a deal anyways. Uh, so I've been I've been writing a few things in the past few days about this summit and what went wrong. And we've had, you know, some really interesting data points uh, about the sources of trouble. So first we had a press conference from President Trump at about 2 p.m. local time after the um, after the summit ended on Thursday. Later that night at about 11 p.m. local time, the North Korean side held a rare press conference with Foreign Minister Ri Yong-ho laying out what the North Koreans had asked for and what the Americans effectively told them. Then we had a uh, senior administration official, and I think many of us have a good idea of who the senior administration official was because of certain references in that transcript, uh, telling us a bit about what the U.S. side again thought of the North Korean offer. And on the Sunday shows, we had John Bolton telling us about the U.S. offer. And effectively, the big picture here is that American demands remained maximalist. Uh, effectively, I don't think there was an offer that the U.S. really made North Korea that came short of its complete unilateral nuclear disarmament, which North Korea has long said is a non-starter. If you've been reading North Korean statements or listening to Kim Jong-un talk or even reading the inter-Korean declarations, which use the phrase complete denuclearization, uh, that becomes more apparent. And on the North Korean side, um, there was actually we, we did gain some public insight into what North Korea means when it says it wants sanctions relief. And North Korea's foreign minister told us what it meant, which was they wanted clauses related to their civilian economy across five United Nations Security Council resolutions passed between 2016 and 2017, effectively to be removed in exchange for the measures that they've already given the United States, presumably also a formalized moratorium on their missile testing and nuclear testing. And on top of that, uh, they offered up a few facilities at the well-known site at Yongbyon, which contains some 300 man-made structures, but they offered up a few of those structures that have to do with the production of fissile material for their nuclear weapons, highly enriched uranium and plutonium. So we can talk a bit about which facilities we think were really on the table there. Um, but enough right. of me talking, Grace. I want to I turn it over to you and really, uh, you know, I know I know that you know you've been following this very closely, and you had this great meme on Twitter uh, that maybe I'll I'll link to in the show notes for this episode um, about the United States kind of failing to listen to what North Korea wants and says. Um, so yes. tell us a bit about what the North Koreans have been saying. Sure. So I guess one of the most uh, surprisingly unsurprising uh, things to come out of the summit uh, for me at least was, you know, th the. I guess the reaction that a lot of analysts, a lot of policymakers, a lot of North Korea followers have had 
you know, in response to North Korean press statements after the conference, um, is that, you know, a lot of these, you know, analysts seem surprised at what the North Koreans have been saying, the fact that they, they're reiterating the fact that they want sanctioned relief. They, uh, it shouldn't come as a surprise that um, they were, they have been expecting, you know, corresponding measures from the U.S. And this, you know, starts directly after the first summit when they signed that first statement uh, in Singapore. North Korea has periodically, you know, come out with, you know, editorials or just news uh, statements that say, you know, we're still waiting on these corresponding measures and we urge the U.S. to take these corresponding measures. So, again, like you said, uh, one of the downfalls, I think, that doomed this relationship from the get-go is, and referring back to my meme, is the U.S., you know, administration failing to listen to and read uh, and really look at what the North Koreans are saying. And maybe some of it is uh, this, you know, strategic blindness, you know, so if we say, oh, well, we didn't know you wanted, you know, sanctioned relief with this, you know, particular set of sanctions, then um, I guess you can play, you know, blind ignorance uh, and say, you know, we, we didn't know what, exactly what you wanted. You weren't clear with us when we were going in. So this is why we had to come out of the summit without an agreement because we were you know, caught off guard or we have to take this back and you know, sit on it and see if we can come up with a better solution in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, Steve Began, the U.S. special representative, told an audience in Stanford in, uh, at the end of January that he was going to figure out what the corresponding measures really meant to North Korea. And then he had a series of meetings in February leading up to the Vietnam summit when he presumably found out. But, you know, at that moment, he should have been able to communicate to, first of all, his superior, Mike Pompeo, and then Pompeo should be able to communicate to the president that really the ingredients do not exist to have a productive summit right now because... Um, look, I mean, you know, my personal view on the on the sanctions relief ask was that the United States could have worked with it and gotten to some point where, you know, you phase things. You don't have to accept, accept the basket of sanctions relief that North Korea was asking for. Trump called it the entirety of the sanctions, which is technically incorrect. But, you know, functionally, the resolutions between 2016 and 2017 represent, you know, 85 to 90 percent of the actual um I guess, the coverage of North Korean exports in terms of uh, revenue mm-hmm. for the regime. So it is mm-hmm. it is a huge ask. Uh, but, you know, you can you can face things if you if you don't think that that price is fitting for the facilities that are on offer at Yongbyon because we don't have certain covert sites or, you know, if you're John Bolton and you want chemical, biological and ballistic missile sites in there, which is, you know, a whole, a whole other thing and probably never actually <laughs> going to be part of a package deal. Um, you can still talk about things and that could have happened at the working level. And instead of, you know, now what happens in Hanoi is we have this sort of embarrassing outcome for both sides. And they basically go back to the working group level and have to talk through these issues. And it even remains to be seen if there is possible room for daylight. Uh, Began gave, um, or sorry, a senior administration official on Friday gave a, uh, a concerning statement, which was that, you know, they viewed any kind of sanctions relief for the North Koreans as, um, I think the word that was used was subsidizing their WMD program, right? If that's their perspective then you're never going to have any agreement short of a comprehensive disarmament deal. Because if you if you conclude an agreement with the North Koreans that gives them anything that they actually want in terms of corresponding measures, i.e. sanctions relief, <laughs> you will in effect be subsidizing their WMD programs if that's how you view concessions and diplomacy. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that I think that I think is is pretty deeply suggestive of a fundamental U.S. perspective here. That's you know it's familiar to us. We saw this during the mm-hmm. Bush administration. Um, Republican administrations, in particular, I think, take this approach in foreign policy towards negotiating with adversaries, where sanctions are put in place to punish bad actors for bad behaviors, and until those behaviors are entirely eliminated, um, in some cases, preferably through regime change, then things can change. Uh, but with North Korea, obviously, the reason they have the nuclear weapons in the first place is to prevent that outcome from happening. So I think they're very much trying to have their cake and eat it, too. Um, right. But let me so I want to I want to dig in a bit with you. Sorry, I just want to dig in a, a bit on this phrase that you brought up corresponding measures, because I think it really sure. kind of led many people astray. Right. We had we had so much discussion and analysis of, you know, an end of war declaration to end the Korean War and uh, a liaison office, which we know they talked about because we had video footage of Trump and Kim at the table in Hanoi discussing this. And even, you know, modifications to joint military exercises, which Trump has said in recent days he didn't actually even bring up in negotiations with Mm -hmm. Kim Jong-un. So, you know, Mm -hmm. why, um, you know, what did corresponding measures mean the whole time? And, And why do you think, you know, nobody really picked up on the importance of sanctions here? So I think corresponding measures, again, um, like I mentioned before, North Korea has been as clear as they can be, you know, without, you know, purchasing a neon sign in Singapore or in Vietnam saying, we want sanctioned relief. So, I mean, they've had, you know, periodic, uh, again, news articles, um, editorials, I guess, press statements that have said, you know, we are looking for specifically a lifting of sanctions. Uh, And then a couple of other measures as well, including uh, the removal of North Korea from the list of state sponsors of terrorism. Um, And also going back to the issue of uh, U.S. uh, South Korea joint military exercises. Uh, North Korea has also mentioned that in the past, but uh, we can actually tell you know, getting closer to the uh, the second summit, they actually toned down language on that. They actually stopped mentioning that. So uh, some of the most recent uh, language on these corresponding measures only mentioned uh, sanctions relief and removal from the list of state sponsors of terrorism. So again, I, I and it baffles me that um, sanctions were not the focus of, uh, or at least from the U.S. side, from Trump's side, that U.S. Uh, the, that the U.S. didn't focus on sanctions as you know the primary ask that North Korea was going for, and maybe part of it, uh, from my perspective, was that the Trump administration was so blinded or maybe caught up in language about denuclearization uh, that we were almost banking on you know or hyper-focusing on uh, the type of language and the type of concessions that we could get from the North Korean side, that um, they assumed that they could get so much of a win from the North Koreans that whatever we gave up um, in in whatever explicit language that came out to be, um, it wouldn't wouldn't have to be so um, explicit or specific. I, I don't know if that I don't know if that made sense. No, no, I think um, I think it does. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, the North Koreans have you know made it very clear that these corresponding measures have to do with sanctions. Um, and and going back to your point about uh, you know this administration, per- particularly uh, members of the Republican Party who take this stance that uh, 
any type of sanctions relief or any other type of economic aid to the North Koreans would be subsidizing their WMD program. Um, again, I think this perspective has to fundamentally change. And if we are, you know, as Bolton has reiterated, that if our goal is complete disarmament and denuclearization of the North Korean nuclear program, we have to remember that dismantlement, dismantling these, you know, multitudes of facilities uh, and getting rid of some of these programs, it's a highly, highly expensive process. And so it's almost just on the practical level, it's impractical for the U.S. or, you know, any, uh, even South Korea or any country to um, force North Korea to do a large amount of dismantlement or uh, denuclearization, you know, without providing some measure of, you know, sanctions relief or economic um, support. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, a good model that I've been thinking about recently was the um, the joint plan of action, right, that we had with Iran. Uh, it was mm-hmm. an t- interim measure that offered Iran a limited bit of sanctions relief to create the conditions that would allow talks to proceed to the point where we could get to that joint comprehensive plan of action in 2015, a much more comprehensive deal that covered many issues uh, that the parties cared about. Uh, with North Korea, you know, I think one of the one of the things that maybe some optimistic analysts had read into the Hanoi summit coming into it was that we would walk away with a deal like that, that there would be kind of a broad trust building package where, you know, North Korea offers up a few buildings at Yongbyon that we care about to varying degrees. And uh, in exchange, we give them an end of war declaration, possibly a liaison office and uh, possibly some other things, um, and possibly, you know, exemptions on inter-Korean projects. Uh, things like that. And of course, none of that happened because uh, that just, you know, that that idea of a piecemeal win set on both sides just uh, didn't really coalesce, or at least the North Koreans thought it might. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, one other thing I will say, though, is that I wonder walking out of Hanoi if the North Koreans now reevaluate what seemed to be their strategy all throughout last year after Singapore, which was that, you know, they should completely uh, continue to compliment Trump, uh, you know, laud him for his ability to break out of the mold that former U.S. presidents adopted. And the hope would be that once you get Trump and Kim in a room, you know, you get that Hail Mary concession from the American side. And in Singapore, that concession was the cancellation of the August 2018 Ulti Freedom Guardian exercise. And this time it didn't really work, even though, you know, they, they did get the exercises unilaterally called off because Trump wants to save some cash. Um, but I wonder, you know, if, if that calculation now changes and the North Koreans now see a little bit of value in the working level process. What do you think about mm-hmm. that? I think that's absolutely a possibility. Um, but going back to, you know, framing the outcome of this, uh, of Hanoi in general, I mean, you mentioned earlier that you believe that this outcome was an embarrassing outcome for both parties. Uh, and I... And to that extent, I think, you know, and it's hard to, you know, really think straight under this tinfoil hat of mine. Uh, but I, part of me wonders if this, the, the results of this summit were actually more planned by both parties, or, you know, sometimes, sometime in the negotiation process, both parties realized um, to, you know, each other's benefit that. You know, having this power move where uh, both Trump and Kim are able to walk away from this negotiation relatively unscathed, you know, without without uh, any agreed language or statement, but, you know, 
walk away from this and be able to have these press statements to still say, you know, we had a great discussion, you know, we're still making remarkable progress, we're being constructive and frank. Um, but at this point, uh, like you mentioned before, you know, all the pieces didn't come together at this time. And because of that, it was better for both parties to walk away with this with no signed statement. Um, and if that's the case, and you know, continuing on with my pseudo conspiracy theory here, uh, <laughs> I wonder if the the Kim regime, you know, also I think you know the Trump administration is very uh, guilty of not seeing this as a process, but more of like a, oh, you know, will all of this will magically, you know, the problem will poof away in you know this one swift step, uh, but I think. You know, maybe the Kim regime also didn't see this as a process um, before coming into the summit. Maybe they also were looking at this second summit as the one-stop um, alleviation for their sanctions problems um, and that they would be able to step away with it, you know, with sanctions relief and relatively um, substantial, but, you know, uh, minimal denuclearization commitments on their part. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, is what would your thoughts be on that? Yeah, I mean, actually, as you were speaking, uh, it reminded me of something that I probably don't talk about as much as I should in my writing about this stuff. But, you know, we we see North Korea as this black box authoritarian country, very top down system. Only Kim Jong Un makes the decisions, which is all true. But that doesn't mean that North Korea is in a political place and that there aren't sort of elite constituencies that Kim Jong Un at least has to think about even if he doesn't have to absolutely, you know, go by what they might want. And, you know, with any process like this, um, I'm sure when, you know, Rang Shinmun printed the text of the Pyongyang summit and, you know, the idea of giving up Yongbyon for corresponding measures, which isn't a new thing, right? Yongbyon's been shut down in the past and it's been, it's been sort of a concession on the chopping block uh, in diplomacy with the United States uh, over and over. Uh, but at this time, you know, uh, the North Koreans have completed their nuclear deterrent. They are more powerful in the nuclear realm than they've ever been in the past. And so the idea of kind of walking things back and offering, you know, the Americans uh, a concession like this might not have sat well with various constituencies. You know, this is the kind of fun, you know, this is the kind of stuff that we can talk about in a podcast that I wouldn't necessarily want to be searchable, you know, speaking of conspiracy <laughs> theories. Uh, but, you know, you never know. And so I think uh, by maybe walking out of the Hanoi summit with this kind of big offer, you know, I mean, um, you remember that, that question Kim Jong-un got from David Nakamura at the, at the Washington Post during the summit. And mm -hmm. it, was a, it was the first time he'd ever answered a, a question uh, before uh, any reporter. And he said that he was feeling confident. And I think, you know, he acted confidently. He put this massive mm -hmm. offer on the table, said, all right, give me 90% of my export revenue back and, and we can, you know, give you these maybe, you know, three or four facilities at Yongbyon. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, I think that sort of an offer makes the North Korean negotiating position look a lot more tenable and it doesn't look like the North Koreans are desperate to uh, to win mm -hmm. over, uh, you know, even like a tiny morsel of sanctions relief. You know, it's actually funny mm -hmm. because I've been in a lot of kind of policy conversations on how we might do sanctions relief with North Korea, kind of trying to think through a different American approach. And even with, you know, very kind of dovish analysts who are like willing to give North Korea sanctions relief, None of us, you know, none of the discussions I've been a part of have ever come close to the kind of offer that the North Koreans asked for, which was, you know, five out mm -hmm. of 11 resolutions. I mean, most most discussions were like, OK, you know, if they give us 
the entirety, uh, you know, if they freeze the entirety of their HEU production in a verifiable way, we might give them kind of sectoral relief on resolutions like 2397 and 2371 from 2017. You know, maybe in sectors like right. textiles, because seafood is linked to the Korean People's Army and we don't want to give them <laughs> revenue. So it's. It, I thought, you know, after the summit, it was kind of funny that um, even even analysts that are trying to work through sanctions relief proposals for North Korea didn't really come close to what the North Koreans themselves are asking for. So one of the big mm -hmm. questions I have now after Hanoi is just how divisible is the North Korean ask, right? So Ri Young Ho said that this was their final offer and that it probably wouldn't change. Um, and he, you know, he left a little bit of uncertainty on, on the Yongbyon ask. He said that this is the best thing we can offer at this point in the process, mm -hmm. suggesting that in the future, you know, maybe we get to covert sites and declarations and things like that. But Right now, I mean, if, if this can't be divided any further, if the North Koreans say, you know, we need this basket of clauses from these UN Security Council resolutions uh, to move forward, and the Americans say no, I mean, that's it, right? It's an indivisible process. You don't talk about anything anymore. Um, and all the yeah. other stuff about a liaison office and end-of-war declaration doesn't even come to play. So th that's one of the big concerns I have. Um, but, you know, if I, were, if I were North Korea, I think I would want to make this as divisible as possible to sort of take this process forward. Right. And, you know, I, I do agree to an extent, you know, that the their language saying, you know, this is the best we had to offer. You're never going to get a, an offer as good as this um, could signal that they are reaching an endpoint where, you know, this was what they thought was a fair trade off. Um, and that if this, you know, still isn't good enough for the U.S., then uh they can't, you know, the North Koreans aren't willing to do any better. But then also on the flip side, it's, I think, a classic negotiation technique where, you know, that uh, goes back to, you know, being able to walk away from a negotiation in, in the first place, but then kind of signaling, you know, how pressing uh, making a decision on this is by saying, you know, this offer is only on the table now. So, you know, putting this, you know, in the frame of, other statements that the North Koreans have made since then, uh, the good press coverage that Kim and the whole summit has gotten in the North Korean media, and uh, you know the positive, uh, the positive outlook from Trump and his administration also, and you know both sides. It sounds like they're there's still you know willingness to try to come back into negotiations and try to work out you know, some deal moving forward. Uh, and I think putting, you know, all this in the context of, you know, this optimism, and maybe some of it is saving face from, you know, quote unquote, failed outcome of the summit. Mm -hmm. But I think it does signal that there is, you know, they haven't, neither party has left this negotiation yet. And for me, that, that keeps this situation, you know, more optimistic than in the past, where I think, before, you know, we've had, for instance, uh, you know, President Clinton, other presidents uh, have maybe similar, not as close relationships with, you know, North Korean leaders. And we've had this type of, you know, avenue of discussion open up in the past. But those, you know, once there was any sign of, you know, pressure from the wrong people, you know, any, uh, for instance, um, shoot, now I'm forgetting, maybe uh Secretary Albright's, mm -hmm. uh, I think her her ask to see, you know, some facility, and actually I'm totally blanking on the exact details of this, but, you know, in the past when there was some ray of hope in 
improving DPRK US relations, you know, some little blip in that relationship was uh, significant enough to shut down those relations pretty immediately. Um, but I think that's, again, optimistic in this case where, you know, we have seen, you know, things like, you know, both from Kim and Trump, these either hostile or antagonistic language, you know, where they're throwing insults back and forth, but then they somehow recover from it and come back and come back enough to write love letters to each other. <laughs> so it's, I think this time it is a little different. Um, I am more optimistic uh, about both parties being able to come back to the negotiations and recover from this uh, embarrassing outcome. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I would agree that it is different this time. Um, I think the source of that difference, though, uh, I might have a slightly different read on, which is that I think the fact that North Korea has actually completed its or thinks that it's completed its nuclear deterrent in the way that it has makes a big difference. Because I think the lesson from 2016 and 2017, the conclusion of the five year testing campaign that Kim announced had concluded in April 2018, I think the lesson was for the United States to take the idea back that it could not disarm North Korea by force and that the only way out of this morass was to come to the negotiating table and talk. And I think we ended up at the negotiating table sort of by accident, right? Well, not by accident. Mm -hmm. We ended up at the negotiating table through the initiative of the South Koreans who launched this process mm -hmm. with the North Koreans in uh, early 2018. But the U.S.-North Korea process, uh, the way it's happened, th that core recognition that North Korea, I think, has emphasized across multiple statements does not seem to have gotten through to American officials, right? We heard Lindsey Graham. I mean, he's not an official in the government. He's a senator. But, you know, he said that if the North Koreans don't make a deal, then Kim Jong-un's not going to be around forever. And, you know, I mean, so that's kind of the stuff that really uh, does concern me and maybe leaves me a little bit more pessimistic about the ways that this could go wrong. Uh, because I think we get to a third summit. But if a third summit fails... Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, d depending on what happens with the uh, American election, of course, uh, the North Koreans might decide that, you know, they can wait to work with another president. Uh, but if there is a second term of the Trump administration, I think that maybe complicates planning for the North Koreans a little bit. And of course, while all this is happening, the North Koreans continue to expand their nuclear forces, right? They're building, um, or at least they're accumulating more fissile material, potentially building more airframes and launchers for missiles. So all of that is happening. And I think that'll make any kind of future agreement with North Korea. That's, you know, that's more going to be arms control than unilateral disarmament because that's not possible. Um, mm -hmm. It's going to make that kind of an agreement all the more difficult in my view. Um, right. So to kind of conclude, um, I did want to ask you, because this is kind of, you know, the main thing that you spend your days doing to kind of break down what you think was the North Korean offer at Yongbyon, what facilities and was the price worth it? It's a great question. So as far as the facilities at Yongbyon, and I know in the days following the summit, there have been, you know, multiple speculations, um, articles from, you know, South Korean journalists that, you know, <laughs> add facilities that we didn't even, you know, think about. Um, I think at its core, uh, the North Korean view of Yongbyon uh, includes their five megawatt reactor, mm -hmm. uh, the IRT-2000, uh, the light water reactor. And just to kind of break things down and, for our listeners a little bit, can you tell us what these reactors, kind of what the inputs and outputs are, I guess, of each of these facilities? Sure. Okay. So the five, oh, I guess I'll start with the IRT-2000. So this is their oldest reactor. Mm -hmm. um, this was completed in the 60s. Uh, 
it's you know as far as we know it's a research reactor it's not their main source of uh, fissile material um, that would actually be the five megawatt reactor uh, which is the one I think when uh, most people talk about the reactor at Yangbyon, this is the one they're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was constructed in the 80s and uh, is their primary source of uh, plutonium. And so this uh, particular model of reactor is known to be particularly useful in uh, creating plutonium. Uh, in addition to those two, there is an indigenously developed uh, light water reactor also in the area. Um, this was actually the site where the North Koreans demolished the cooling tower in mm -hmm. one of the you know, previous iterations of uh, quote-unquote Yangbyon dismantlement, um, only to then you know, start up the reactor again not too long after. Uh, so those are the, I would say, the three you know, main nuclear uh, facilities that are, you know, most uh, visible at Yangbyon and the ones that I think North Korea could uh, reasonably integrate into their view of the Yangbyon facility. Uh, we also know in addition to these reactors, there is a plutonium reprocessing center mm -hmm. at, uh, in this area as well as a uranium enrichment facility. And so, I mean, this is the site, you know, if we're, if we exclude all of, you know, the other alleged, you know, covert fissile material production uh, sites around the country, this is, uh, as Sig Hecker has said, the heart of their nuclear program, uh, where we for sure know that they are, you know, producing fissile material here, uh, there's also a possible tritium production site, uh, and tritium is uh, an important component if you want to boost uh, your nuclear device. So in order to increase the yield of a nuclear device, um, you'd need tritium in the weapon. So if we could cap, uh, and I think you had mentioned this, I guess, earlier, if you know, possible tritium production cap could be a an option that we go for in the future when we're talking about uh, either slowing down or shutting down parts of their nuclear program. Um, but yeah, going back to you know what North Korea sees as Yangbyon, I think the the reactors, and if we could you know argue and say you know this uranium enrichment facility and the tritium production. Um, and the plutonium reprocessing center. Because if they are to shut down these reactors, then there wouldn't necessarily be a need for these other facilities anymore either. So, uh, however, um, again, in the days following the summit, there have been speculations about other facilities nearby or other uh, buildings and underground structures nearby that could also be supporting their nuclear program. Um, we're still currently looking into this, but I would, I think it'd be safe to assume since these are, you know, not really at the most visible front of the Yongbyon facility that these aren't in uh, North Korea's idea of 
what the Yongbyon concession would entail. Right. Yeah. And just to uh, share one translation of what Ryongho said, uh, it was that the offer was to permanently and completely dismantle all the nuclear material production facilities in the Yongbyon area. That's why I asked you about inputs and outputs, mm -hmm. because I think any facility <laughs> where the output is something that could be used in a nuclear weapon, I would interpret mm -hmm. to be a nuclear material production facility. And I think the big debate is whether tritium counts in that equation, because that brings in the ELWR, the light water reactor, and the IRT-2000. Uh, but if you don't mm -hmm. include tritium, it it just leaves on the table uh, the 5 megawatt reactor, which might be at the end of its life, because it's old, as you said, mm -hmm. and uh, and the reprocessing plant and the enrichment halls. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in my view, I would absolutely include tritium. Um, you know, the North Koreans can come back and argue and say, you know, this isn't necessary for uh, a nuclear weapon. So in, if they have legitimate, you know, non-weapons reasons to produce the tritium, you know, they, they could come up with an argument. But yeah, I think Visson material does encompass uranium, highly enriched uranium, plutonium, and tritium at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, all of this was what North Korea could offer, quote-unquote, at the current stage of talks, which I thought was an interesting kind of opening. Um, uh, you know, we talk a lot mm -hmm. about irreversibility, and we've talked about covert sites a little bit. Um, but one of the things that is really irreversible in diplomacy is revealing one of your covert sites, because you can't put that genie back in the bottle. Um, <laughs> so I think for the North Koreans, um, you know, I think the Americans have told them pretty clearly that they know about covert sites and negotiations, and the North Koreans simply have kind of shaken their heads and shrugged and say, we don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but, you know, I mean, Trump said during the press conference that the North Koreans were surprised to learn of what we what we know. Um, so I think to get to that point where we maybe talk to, you know, talk about these other facilities, because, look, I mean, as much as, uh, you know, I mean, South Korean President Moon Jae-in has admittedly overstated the value of Yongbyon as kind of rep representing, you know, he said, I think the dismantlement would take North Korea to an irreversible stage and represents kind of almost the totality of its nuclear complex, which it doesn't. Um, but if we got to this point and we built trust with a sanctions for Yongbyon deal, then maybe that opens up some other things that we can get from the North Koreans. I think it absolutely does and really speaks to the point that, you know, complete disarmament of North Korea's entire nuclear program, again, is, you know, not only not completely feasible at this moment um, diplomatically, but you know, financially, you know, again, it's a it's an expensive process to get rid of, you know, all of these buildings. And then also, you know, we have to remember that there are people, there are tens of thousands of workers who, you know, work at this facility, who live in this area. Um, relocation, you know, is an issue. We have to think about, you know, what really has to go on on the ground when we talk about dismantling a massive facility like this. Um, so, yeah, I completely agree that, you know, having this first step type of uh, group of concessions that, you know, it, it doesn't satisfy Bolton's want for <laughs> North Korea's complete denuclearization or complete disarmament. But it does open up the possibilities, you know, to set, you know, a foundation of goodwill, of, you know, momentum going so that we can you know, potentially move on to you know, prevent further proliferation of their nuclear program and uh, prevent more uh, antagonism from uh, 
military perspective, but also a diplomatic perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think in short, it would have been nice to come out of the summit with some type of agreed language. Um, but, you know, if we look back into the Singapore summit, they did come out with language that didn't necessarily mean much. So I think there's that trade-off as well. You know, if the second summit had produced uh, another agreed statement, how powerful would this statement have actually been? And, you know, if we start to get, develop this pattern of just signing pieces of paper that, you know, look nice, but don't really mean anything, I think that also sets uh, a negative precedence for the negotiations moving forward. So, um, you know, I'm... I'm not happy that they didn't come out with, you know, an agreement, but at the same time, it, it could have been much, much worse. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's probably a good optimistic note to end on for today. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, Grace, thanks so much for joining me. Really. It's always, it's always so much fun to talk to you about this stuff. Uh, We hope to have you back on uh, whenever we have more exciting developments with North Korea. Um, But before we sign off, can you tell our listeners how they can follow you on your social platform of choice? Sure. So you can all follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Grace underscore C underscore Lou. And if you want to check out the meme that Ankit mentioned earlier, that is, I think, pinned at the top of my profile right now. So go check it out. That's basically how I feel about, you know, the (laughs) precedents that the U.S. and North Korean relationship set before they went into this summit. (laughs) Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, the big lesson I take away from Hanoi is to, you know, take North Korean statements literally and seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. we we go back to that. There is a lot of value in what the people we're trying to negotiate with tell us about what they think and feel. So uh, Mm there is that. Absolutely agree. So that's all for this week. Uh, If you like what you heard on the podcast, uh, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes and discussions like this. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.